Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Let Them All Talk. Take a voyage with three legendary actresses. Academy Award winner Meryl Streep, Academy Award nominee Candace Bergen, and Academy Award winner Diane Weist as they come aboard a new Max original film by Academy Award winning director Steven Soderbergh. Meryl Streep plays author Alice Hughes, who must reunite with her two lifelong friends to right wrongs from the past and have a bit of fun along the way. Let Them All Talk, now streaming on HBO Max and Rated R. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And Ann, we've got tons of stuff to talk about, movies from Netflix and Hulu and all kinds of other stuff. But first, this is kind of a sequel to last week's discussion where we were all ready to just do our top 10 lists and then the HBO Max news happened. And that's been continually developing. So to the surprise of absolutely no one, Christopher Nolan is pissed. <laughs> so he came we out. Like, we were all waiting with bated breath for that to drop. And it, it yeah, dropped. It, it dropped. It dropped gloriously. I mean, from a, from a scandal standpoint, the way the, the, the vitriol that was dripping out of his official statement, calling this, you know, the worst streaming service and so forth. I mean, he's just lucky that this didn't happen when Tenet would have been affected. You know, well, he Tenet, has no, the point is that Tenet drove this decision. There's the no question. The point is that Warner Brothers was profoundly disappointed by what happened with Tenet and, and looked at the numbers. But um, this decision was made, according to John Thithian, who's the head of uh, the National Association of Theater Owners, and he did a big podcast this week with uh, the box office folks. And he, he basically said it was an upstairs decision, you know, a John Stanky, Jason Kalar decision, and that the studio, uh, I guess he was trying to kind of smooth relationship between Warner Brothers and the exhibitors for the future, which will continue to exist. There's a there's an interesting divide between the people who are saying the sky is falling, it's the end of movies, it's the end of theaters, and the people like me, I, I really still believe, and and uh, we have people who listen to the podcast who are, argue, are arguing with me about this. I do think this is a pandemic thing, an opportunistic thing, a thing where they, in the short term, can make some money, build some subscribers, and then return to some other model. A changed model, I grant you, but it's going to go back. They're going to go back to the theaters. It's the only way to make that but much money. They wouldn't if they if they didn't have to. I mean, that's, that's part right. of it. We can't give them credit for the, Correct. you know, like Nolan values the theatrical experience for, for cultural aesthetic reasons that are, it's just a completely different value system than what's in play with the studios. So there's no way of, of kind of getting on the same page there. And I, I don't know, is it is it just because of, I don't think it's, we can put it all on tenant in the sense that if you look at the 2021 slate of HBO, of, of Warner Brothers films that will now also be HBO Max films, none of those, are surefire bets. Even Dune, we don't, we cannot just assume that that was obviously going to be a ginormous blockbuster success. I mean, Blade Runner 2049 was not, 
So it on some level, you could also argue that maybe because the tenant definitely informed discussions here, but also if they had this slate and tried to release these movies in theaters, it probably would have been a disaster no matter what. During this period, yes. Um, but and, but they could have waited. That's the point that everyone has, is making. They could have waited like everyone else is, is waiting for, for things to come back. But there's a huge glut of product going through there and they would have been competing. Uh, by the way, uh, Wonder Woman 84 also informed uh, this the, the way that they announced the movie, which was such a shock to Hollywood. You know, they basically informed people if they did at all, right before they dropped it, the news. And so they dropped the news of this new model without consulting their partners, the people who paid for Dune. And part of the reason for that was this negotiation that they had to go through with Warner, with uh, Wonder Woman to pay Jenkins, Patty Jenkins, and to pay Gal Gadot. How, everything, it cost them like $10 million a piece to, to pay them off. And I so, think they knew this was going to be a mess and needed to rush it out and and that's it. With the that's mess. it. They knew they were going to get huge blowback. That there would be these endless negotiations with everyone. And the other thing that they did go through with Tenet, which was so difficult for them, uh, was was this sort of constant chaotic shifting and moving. And I, I just know from inside Warner Brothers that they were all under serious duress the whole time. This way, they know what the plan is. They know what they're doing, and there isn't a discussion about it. Uh, how they pay off their partners is going to be fascinating to watch because Netflix, when they make these worldwide deals, they pay people ahead of time for what that would be worth in the theatrical marketplace. And the question is, what is the theatrical marketplace? We don't know what its value is anymore. At right now, it, it doesn't really exist. It's more of a symbolic, almost abstract concept for most people. It's also notable with on the Nolan front, he doesn't have a movie coming out next year. And I wonder how this conversation will continue to evolve. I mean, it happened that Nolan was doing press now for the Tenant Home Video and for international stuff. He was in India promoting the theatrical release there. And so he's talking about this stuff in part because he's sort of in promotional mode. But I wonder for this, you know, vast spectrum of filmmakers from Shaka King who did Judas and the Black Messiah to, to Denis Villeneuve who hasn't commented publicly on this yet, what next year is going to be like when they have to promote these movies how do you tow that party line and then also kind of deal with the fact that you're kind of pissed because they're not getting around this nobody is going to reverse this decision but on point. the other hand what i sort of enjoy i know this is awful this is sort of a schadenfreude thing for me um these are entitled people who are you you know someone like chris Nolan. <laughs> are you talking about the filmmakers yeah filmmakers entitled being, you don't they're say they're used to being treated like god's gift to humanity they have smoke blown at them constantly and many of them i i'm a huge fan of Denis Villeneuve. i think he's one of the great filmmakers that we have and i loved blade runner uh, 2049 but this this is a situation where um, the agencies and the people who negotiate these deals and the lawyers and the managers and the people who are running the companies that partner with Warner Brothers and finance the movies, all of these people are used to getting their cut of the pie. And it's a big, juicy pie. And they are getting shut out as if they aren't important. Well, and I, think I find that fascinating it, well it, i mean it's it's fascinating but also not surprising right Twas ever thus didn't we all see mank 
Well, don't yeah, answer no, that. No, it's but, never been any different. But what you I, have with well, a paradigm shift like this, here's the thing. I've been saying this for a really long time, that the studios, the big studios have been more and more facade-like in terms of uh, becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, the fewer executives, fewer projects in development, fewer deals, you know, fewer movies. And you, what's so weird about this is that Warner's was one of the bigger ones, one of the more uh, deluxe studios that really spent a lot of money and did do a lot. They, they're all, over the last decade, they have all been coming down in size and in scope and importance. And now they're really not that important in the overall scheme of things. When you look at Disney, and we were going to talk about the fact that there's a big Disney earnings call today as we're recording this, we're expecting some news to drop there about what they're going to be doing. Um, it, it, you see that <laughs> movies are just this small blip inside that enormous corporation. And we all have to come back to, to recognizing uh, that uh, our world that we care about and the, the, you and me with the indies, it's even smaller. It's even and it's tinier. always been. But, I, but I, I embrace that because it has ways of affecting the larger equation. I mean, Pixar scouts for screenwriters out of Sundance and, and the ecosystem for films that don't necessarily reach a larger audience still is tremendously influential. It's, it's a platform for filmmakers who don't have resource. I mean, the, the, the way in which people work to make movies these days has, has been mostly separated from the studio process for years now. So this kind of situation is just a, a grand illustration of all of that. And I don't find it to be that surprising in any particular kind of way, but it, it, it is a reminder on some level that if you choose to work on that scale as an artist, then at some point in time, you're not going to be in charge of things that, and things can happen that you don't agree with and you just won't have a recourse. So, I mean, I, none of these movies that are in 2021, I don't feel bad for any of these filmmakers, honestly. I mean, these movies will be fine. They're going to reach a lot of people. But I do think that it is it is worth noting that there's going to be a lot of movies that come out in 2021 in unusual kinds of ways. And it was never even a possibility that they could reach a mass audience. You know, movies that, that get seen at Sundance or whatever other virtual film festivals are happening next year. It, it, right. I mean, it's just it, most of those movies are just not it's not a discussion that they're going to come out on 3000 screens. And it never it never would have been even pre pandemic for a lot of stuff. So now we're going to see real shrinkage. We're going to see shrinkage in the number of theaters that emerge from this intact. If the theaters don't get a big bailout from the government and there's no guarantee that they will, that they'll even be included in the package that, that is out there because from the point of view of the United States Senate and, and Congress, you know, they just may not think that movies are, are... There was one comment on IndieWire, which I looked at with some interest where um, uh, a woman was suggesting that, why would you support a dying model? You know, why would you even give them money when you know they're on their way out? I don't, I don't want to go there. Uh, That's not where I am, but uh, it's, uh, there are many who may think that way. I, well, I don't know how, how savvy the Senate and, that, and the House are in terms of the future of exhibition and on that front. I mean, that's it's a real this deep cut, It's this unimportant to them. It's just, yeah, it's just not on their, it's, it's on the periphery, but you know, do they, do they recognize that it's not valuable to support this because it's a dying mode of, of experiencing entertainment? I don't know. I think that 
again, on the exhibition front, to me, what's going to be more fascinating is to see how the wider exhibition community starts to crawl back the art houses and individual places because we live in such a fragmented country with different state regulations and all this kind of stuff. You know, what what is exhibition going to be like beyond these questions of studio movies, which is just going to be a giant mess for a while and everybody kind of knows it. Yeah, so no question. I'm curious um, on the Disney call, for example, I was just thinking about Fox Searchlight, which is part of Disney. It's no longer Fox. It's Searchlight, Searchlight Productions. Part of Disney and and uh, Old Habits, Die Hard. And, um, and, you know, we kept wondering, are they going to give movies to Hulu, right? What, what's going on with Hulu? What is Hulu? And, and I like Hulu and I use Hulu and there's a lot of good stuff on there. FX is on there now. Um, but uh, there's some conversations about Hulu being folded into Disney Plus, you know, to make it bigger and more robust. There's all sorts of questions. on. There's so many things on the table. It's exciting in a terrible way. Yeah, exactly. We got to embrace the change, but also recognize people have jobs on the line and it's just going to be a lot of confusion for a while. So hopefully that's heading in a direction of greater clarity as, as we continue to talk these things through. Well, speaking of the streamers, let's turn to a new Netflix film because The Midnight Sky, which I know you got a really early look at, I finally got a chance to see as critics weighed in this week. And I have to tell you, there's a really fascinating divide between the way this film has been discussed from an awards prognostication standpoint and the critical reaction, I found the movie to be gorgeous and certainly had a lot of impressive craft on display and a strong Clooney performance, but so derivative of everything from Gravity to Solaris to all these other kinds of things that I, it just never kind of found its own voice. And, and, and that just really held it back for me. What, but you, you seem higher on it. I, I think. think, um, you know, I, I'm glad you appreciate the craft side of it. And that's where I think it has Oscar prospects because it's such a lean year. Um, I'm sort of damning with faint praise. I don't know how to explain <laughs> this. It has to do with the fact that there's so few big movies, big uh, with scale and scope. And so I think that the Martin Rue, the cinematographer and, and uh, Jim Bissell, the production designer did a great job. Uh, there's outer space, there's Arctic wastes, there's lots of CGI, lots of action sequences with meteors hitting the space station and floating blood. And I thought that was very creative and very beautifully done. A little um, too CGI what, heavy that scene to yeah, for me. Yeah, I, I, I just, I thought it was, Alexandre Desplat does a beautiful job with, with the score. I, I agree with you, the acting is very good. He did do a weird thing where his, younger self has Clooney's voice. And he did some very complicated uh, mixing thing with his own voice and the guy- I found that acted, very difficult a, to, to work a peck with. of a younger peck, a Scott, is his name Scott Peck? He's, he's, a, he's a, a relative of Gregory. Um, oh, I didn't realize that yeah. there was a lineage there. Well, I think that's a bit of an issue because who doesn't know what a younger Clooney looks like, right? I mean, it's a recent memory, the ER guy. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, to me, he was seen, seemed to kind of diss the Irishman in your interview with them and saying the de-aging right. thing didn't. I thought that was a miscalculation because to me, a de-aged Clooney would have actually been something a lot of people mm, would have enjoyed. I agree with that. I'm not a trick. fan of that whole process. I think it, w I think it would have worked in this particular because it's not even, it's not as dramatic as de-aging Robert De Niro either. It wasn't but the that voice long took you out of it as much as, as the strange. other thing would have done. So his yeah. own but point no, exactly. is undermined. But the, yeah. guy didn't, the guy doesn't look enough like Clooney 
I think, at least the way, that, especially the way Clooney looks in this movie, where he looks like the Syriana character with the big beard. I love beard the way the he aged eyes. up and, and had yeah, the he's very. I, the he first couple minutes, ill. Yeah, I the first couple him. minutes of this movie, he's like wandering this Arctic refuge, you know, drinking whiskey and listening to country music, and I was like, and giving this himself be the whole blood thing. transfusions. Yeah, yeah. I was like, this should be the movie. I, mean, <laughs> I think he's made three really good films. He's made. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. He did uh, Good Night and Good Luck, which was amazing. And then I thought Ides of March was I loved very Ides strong. Of March, Those three. And I loved Good Night and Good Luck. And Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, I always thought was a great, uh, audacious first movie. I wasn't yeah. sure if it entirely worked. but It tries but stuff. He's, he's, he, he loves directing. I mean, I talked to him and, you know, the man couldn't be more enthusiastic and he just engages with it and loves it. And he reminds me a little bit of Jodie Foster. There's a kind of, um, extraordinary competence and understanding of how to work with actors and storytelling. And yet he does, I think you're right. He doesn't have his own voice somehow as a director and and writer uh you know he loves playing with the toys and he loves getting into it but um well you could argue that good night and good luck is the most personal film he did you know his father being a right. broadcast journalist and all that right. and you feel it in the material it was a very risky kind of filmmaking that was incredibly mature and didn't you know slow down to explain itself and that's a hard thing to pull off i mean it, it was recognized as such so i'm surprised he didn't stay on that path consistently but it's it's hard He's, on a, he's on a Clint Eastwood path, and it's an interesting question because he follows some of Clint's um, approach. Um, they're both big movie stars, and we should never forget that movie stars are powerful and have, get their own way, and everybody services them. But at the same time, um, there's a certain humility um, in the way that they do things, and they, they don't do a lot of takes. They keep it low, the budget. They don't go overboard. Um, uh, they're not control freaks like Robert Redford or, or Warren Beatty. They they keep moving, and I and 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 I just think that he has some really good movies in him in the future, and I'm rooting for him. Yeah, and I mean the guy's turning sixty next year is obviously in this you know at a turning point of sorts, trying to figure out what is the best use of his time, and yet as as you also pointed out in your piece, sold his. Uh, his was it a whiskey company. He has what or? we call "fuck you" money. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like on the cusp of it. He let's shared a billion dollars and say when he yeah. sold the company. Well, no, it's uh, Mark Cuban said there's there's "fuck you" money and then there's "fuck everybody" money or something like that. <laughs> I think he's like he's in "fuck you." He's not quite in "fuck everybody," so he's still got to be a little careful about what he does. But it's the uh, but it is notable because to be somebody like that, you have so many directions that you can go. All right, so if Midnight Sky is primarily an awards play from a technical standpoint, and Clooney is not, you know, sort of a slam dunk kind of best director nominee, it, it does come back to this question of, you know, Netflix has so much stuff, but what stuff is, is sort of at the top of the list? Is Chicago 7 still sort of coasting along? Because Mank does not seem to have been huge on Netflix. I mean, I still really like this movie. I love debating it with people. I'm, I'm fascinated by the different perspectives on it, but it doesn't seem like audiences were over the moon about it. And it certainly doesn't seem like the Academy members who have seen it have been sort of universally, you know, over the moon. So it's, it's really hard to tell, but it does seem like there's only um, Chicago 7 and Ma Rainey that are the ones that, that kind of stand out as kind of 
strong You're right. Those are the here. two top titles for, for Netflix. Ma Rainey is really strong. I could see Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman both winning their respective categories, Mo mostly because Frances McDormand has won twice in recent memory, and a third Oscar just seems hard to fathom. Uh, it's just the way the Oscars work. It could happen, but um, it's more likely that a showy, costumey, makeup-y, uh, singing performance, even if she doesn't sing all the songs herself, from from uh, from Viola would, would be the, the best actress win for her. Uh, and the movie is just so sublimely uh, satisfying. I just think it's going to be uh, a big winner. Um, and those could be the things it wins, the, the two acting uh, prizes. And well, Chicago and the, well, I was just gonna say I, the Gotham Awards IFP is giving uh, is giving the two of them uh, special prizes, which indicates you know where that campaign is is heading. And uh, actually, I thought it was interesting they have they're, they're giving awards to those two, and also to Steve McQueen and to uh, Ryan Murphy. So that cover, covers a, a wide range of the streaming space in the All right, fall so season. the streamers are dominating the conversation right now. We have Amazon with One Night in Miami, and we have, um, obviously, uh, we've got the, all the Netflix movies. There's so many of them, even if they don't all uh, land. Um, and that, But they're making noise, and, uh, and Apple is making noise as well with uh, On the Rocks. Uh, that the A24 is pushing, but Minari, but we're, we're, where are we with the, 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 the specialty distributors? They're not making as much noise as the streamers are now. And my, I, I think what's going on is that they're actually going to come around later uh, and because they're still waiting. For they the got time. They yeah. were given time. So they're, they're using their time, which I think makes a lot of sense. It's like in a basketball game, you, you use the time you have for those timeouts. Why go now when you can go later? You know, it just it just but, seems like there's space. But there's also it. a lot of uh, work under, you know, they're sort of like ducks paddling, you know, the legs are moving. They're doing a lot of work under the surface. They're doing a lot of guild screenings and Q&As and all that stuff that they would ordinarily be doing out in the world. We just yeah. aren't as aware of it. Yeah, the guild screen, that's always interesting because, you know, I mean, this time of year, usually we pop into a SAG screening or moderate a, a DGA thing or whatever. And well, now we're doing it's some like, of those things we online. Are. No, yeah. we are, but it's it doesn't. You don't see it in the same way. It doesn't. It's it's almost like it's it's a secret online club thing that you either are, are are watching or not. You know, it's like you have to have a passcode to watch this TV show that happens to be a guild. Q&A. Yeah, I mean, last night I, I asked for and got access to this uh, San Francisco Film Festival Awards thing that they were doing with Chloe Zhao and Aaron Sorkin and uh, Glenn Close um, and uh, and um, the, the cast of One Night in Miami. And, and they actually had uh, Academy members from the San Francisco area interviewing them <laughs> online and it was sort of you know ordinarily they would be schmoozing in in all these different uh parties and and opportunities to to uh charm uh their quarry uh but it was sort of a, a bizarre one-on-one -on -one situation 
All right, so another streaming movie that I happened to catch up with, you you mentioned it briefly last week, and uh, I felt like I had to fill in the gap just so I could know, and that was Happiest Season, which I have to tell you, really disappointed me. <laughs> I was going to say, so, so you tell me, Eric, why was that the number one movie over Thanksgiving weekend? For well, this was, this was originally supposed to be a, a studio theatrical release, right? I mean, that was sort of the idea. Because I don't think in theaters anyone would have cared about this movie, but you people crave those holiday movies. And it had a star. It has, you know, a, a lesbian hook to a, a genre that we've seen before. Very I think familiar. Those aspects of it. Very conventional. Yeah. And, and, and it presents itself as a very accessible kind of crowd pleaser. I think what I found so frustrating about it is that in spite of that, it just felt very tame to me. I mean, you have this great dynamic, right? This great premise of, you know, Kristen Stewart uh, it has to go to her girlfriend's house and her girlfriend hasn't come out yet will she come out but then the family which has a there's a political dynamic to the family presumably this is a, a fairly conservative family with you know republican beliefs the fact that the movie never explicitly acknowledges that or even what their value system is like are they homophobic do they what what, what kind of how did they raise their kids they what, kind what is of driving gave that? the father the generic uh role of politician and yeah as i found it toothless. that that put him in the public eye you know and it, it could have gone either way it could have been boston brahmin you know it could have been uh New in York an america brahmin. of 20, 2020 it just felt so dated and kind of True. lame to me to not to not dig into that i actually thought case do was really strong in the she role was very good i really thought she gets was into brilliant. it and there and there's and there's a she moment where and there's a moment where she makes a decision with eugene levy who i thought was a really kind of crass it's supporting his character his it's not, i'm sorry uh, dan. dan levy yeah they look so similar that I, to me it's almost like a I like dan levy. Thing. i and thought so, he was yeah, probably no, one of the, the you know i was a little annoyed by i'm not the saying he's not he, funny he's underdeveloped that's the problem I was a little annoyed by the fact that in a a movie written by and executed by women, he, as the guy, was given a lot of the wisdom of the piece. He was like this guru. He's like he was like the the advisor who pops in. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't love that, but but I did think there was a crucial moment that I guess I shouldn't spoil for whatever reason. It's pretty late in the Uh, day now. People who have seen that movie have seen the movie. Let's let's spoiler alert. well, okay, fine. So, so spoiler alert, Kristen Stewart seems to be making the decision with her pal that this relationship is not for her, which is a normal human thing to come around to. And then we still got a stupid scene at the gas station where her girlfriend gets one last chance. Like, it just felt to me like such a negation of a really credible transformation that this character goes through from assuming that these characters that, that they're destined to be together to realizing that it, it simply doesn't work and then it just rushes through all this stuff and that that felt to me like a repudiation of the depth that Kristen Stewart actually brought to the part and that that really annoyed me I was as a, as a I role. was yelling at the screen I was saying leave her don't get together with her go do you think they did it to troll you I mean <laughs> 
Yeah, Aubrey Plaza, again, totally underutilized, by the way. Absolutely. The the out gay characters were the people I was rooting for throughout the movie, and because that's how the movie's set up. The the straights are are not smart and not not cool. Um, But I would say say that um, she engages us. So the fact that we got so caught up in it was and she and she we put up a story uh, from Claire Duvall explaining why she yeah Claire Duvall is an interesting filmmaker and I hope that she gets more work out of this since it's been so popular and, and continues to do this kind of genre that often seems underutilized it's certainly it, it's not like the it doesn't it doesn't show you the anything about why it shouldn't work it just it's just not a fully realized concept and I wish it you know, having having the eyeballs it has, having the people involved that it has, I wish it went Just, further. With there was, I wish it, it had a more realized universe to it. I, I'm you know? with you. I'm totally with you. But I, I want to <laughs> see what she does next. You know, I sure, think she's a smart, sure. uh, a smart director, and, a, and a, I'd like to see what she does next. And um, speaking of romantic comedies, uh, I have to say that I have uh, a guilty pleasure. For all of you, uh, a terrible movie that that David Ehrlich uh, correctly uh, lambasted in a very entertaining review, which you should all read if you haven't read it. That introduced me to the the existence of such a thing as a soda farl, which is an Irish sweet cookie of some kind. That's what he compares <laughs> Wild Mountain Time from John Patrick Shanley. I loved Moonstruck. I've always loved Moonstruck, uh, but it was directed by Norman Jewison. And that's the difference here. Uh, Shanley directed this play uh, himself as a movie and put it in Ireland and put real people in it, including Emily Blunt and the great Christopher Walken, who's delightful, and Jamie Dornan, who is dumbfounding, uh, even if he's good to look at, and uh, John Hamm, thank you. I'm so glad he's in the movie. But it is, um, it is over the top, total, magical mystery tour uh romance and uh if uh, there was a part of me that wanted it very badly and enjoyed it despite its uh craziness well i will try to check it out i did you know you don't i mean who knows sometimes you're right sometimes you're wrong it sounds more engaging i called it on happiest season yeah but it sounds it's a different a different category of experience i'm certainly into just seeing random stuff right now like this because we've entered that weird period of the year where I have this almost like like Dr. Manhattan-esque ubiquity when it comes to awareness of films that are out there with with very few exceptions I mean I just I, I feel like I've really seen almost everything of note I have maybe three or four significant blind spots that I don't want to detail right now because I'm going to try to get to them <laughs> in the next week or so. But it, but it is, I mean, like, again, it's been a really good seen, year for the movies. Uh, uh, by the way, you, you, you opted to do your, um, a lot of the movies that are coming out at the, at the, um, in, in 2021 qualified in t- 2020 in order to be considered by the New York film critics and the LA film critics. Um, yeah. Because the critics are still really important, even if Critics' Choice and Globes are down the pike and they have different rules. Um, but uh, did you, you, you chose to go, I mean, I went along with you because you did it first, but why not wait on the 10 bests if you're still catching up with films? Every year people complain about how early it gets. To me, I, I start keeping a list of my favorite movies of the year in January, in part because I see a lot of them the year beforehand. It's just because when you go to festivals and you pay attention to these movies and we use the, the release date as sort of the determining factor, you enter the year with a pretty robust list. And 
my blind spots did not seem substantial enough to wait, especially as you know, being part of a competitive news organization and wanting to be part of the initial wave of reactions, it just, there wasn't, there wasn't enough there, I felt. I mean, maybe, maybe Wild Mountain Time would have changed everything. I don't know. I don't know. So. I don't I know. Don't think so. That's but, not going to uh, be one of the contenders for the year. Look, we saw, we got a chance to see a lot of stuff. When do you guys vote? We vote a week from this week's Friday. So next week we'll, we'll have to figure out our timing exactly. But yeah, we're about a week out from New York Film Critics Circle. And I'm, I'm fielding questions from people all the time about qualifications and what do we think is going to, you know, get into the conversation. You can tell how publicists try to play you. They say, do you think X performance has a chance, which is really just a way of reminding you to that this performance. And I think the, the challenge is that people always assume they know what's going to happen. Like, oh, this movie is a critic's favorite, so it's obviously going to win everything. But the critics are very engaged voters, especially this voting body, which is the largest it's ever been, I think. And How many? Uh, it's close to 50 people. And I suspect most will participate. Sometimes people are unavailable uh, just because it's it's going to be an online voting process and all that kind of stuff. And there's just, there's tons of stuff and people want to see as much as they can. Most people are doing top 10 lists and rushing to fill in gaps the way that I have. So I think that the vote's going to be all over the place and we shouldn't take anything for granted, but I, I have think, no idea. I do think Nomadland and uh, Minari are, are likely to do well um, with the group. You would think, you would think those would be the, the I mean, certainly Nomadland, which, you know, Searchlight Pictures released, qualified that movie, It's it seems, in order to put it on track for, for critics. That's right. Uh, wins, but that, who knows? I don't, I haven't polled all, all the members of our group, so I, I don't know if everyone is, is as big a fan of that movie as they might be of some of the other things that are in contention. I mean, there's a lot of international stuff and docs, and I think the vote, we'll see what happens with Best Picture, but certainly the vote for performances and screenplay and doc are just going to be all across the map and that means probably multiple rounds of voting and, and who knows what what emerges on top in that situation it's it's really uh it's going to be unpredictable which by the way is great we should embrace that because unpredictability is what makes this kind of worthwhile so next week i guess we'll dig further into that and we'll have a sundance lineup to talk about so that's super exciting too. A I'm really bunch curious of new to see movies. what ends up in Sundance. I think there's some distributors that are not submitting, and I'm curious to see where yep, where yep. the big holes are. Lots of big surprises there. Okay, and well, stay sane over the weekend, and I will see you soon. Bye, bye, Eric. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.